Colossians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 8 and 9 today, continuing on in our verse-by-verse study. We'll be looking at verses 8 and 9 of Colossians 2, but let's pray first. Lord, we praise you this morning for those kids that got saved up at camp. Those kids that were delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Thank you for that. Lord, we pray a blessing upon those kids today. We pray your empowering, your anointing, your presence, your joy, your peace, your grace upon those kids today. Thank you so much for that harvest, Lord. And thank you for this time now when we could press into you through your word. Lord, thank you for the sure foundation that your word is. Thank you that when we cling to it, it keeps us from error, keeps us from false philosophies and ideologies, it keeps us from uh, heresy and, and wolves among the body. And we just pray that this morning, Lord, your word would be so living and so active. It, it would just be alive in our hearts and it would blossom and bloom there. That, Father, you would anoint the teaching of your word this morning, that it would be profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we'd leave this place more equipped to be effective for your kingdom, more in love with you, in a deeper relationship, more rooted and grounded and built up and established in our faith. Lord, work that this morning. We don't want to waste the next hour or so. We want it to be very fruitful for your kingdom. So we've opened up our Bibles, and as best we know how, we've opened up our hearts and our minds, but Holy Spirit, come and just invade this time. Bless it for the furtherance of your kingdom. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to talk about something that is really the basis for the whole book of Colossians. It's a context for the book of Colossians. It's the reason that the book was written. And so it's important that we have an understanding of it. We've alluded to it during our study of the first chapter, but we kind of held off really until we got into the meat of the second chapter. And the whole second chapter... excuse me, is dealing with a heresy that was beginning to invade the church in Colossae. It was a Gnostic heresy. We'll explain what that means. Sometimes called the Colossian heresy. But basically, this epistle, this letter was written from Paul, who was in prison in Rome, to the churches in the Lycus Valley. Modern-day Turkey is the area. There's a church of Colossae there. Uh, there is the church of um, Heropolis. And there is one other one there that's escaping my mind right now. But three churches in the region. Paul wrote this letter to them to combat some of the false ideas that were floating around about Jesus Christ. There were false ideas about his identity. Some misconceptions about who he is and who he isn't. They were really being formed at this time and just starting to creep into the church. Now, Epaphras, who who we believe was the founder of this church, he's mentioned in chapter 1, verse 17, and chapter 4, verse 12, he took a thousand-mile journey from Colossae, from modern-day Turkey, all the way over to Rome just to inform Paul of what was happening. We know that Paul had already been praying for the church in Colossae, though he had never visited them. But he goes and he visits Paul and he informs them of these false ideas. And so Paul writes this letter, this whole thing that we've been studying for several months, in response to those false ideas. Now, scholars or Bible commentators often call the whole of those ideas, or the conglomeration of them, the Colossian heresy. 
or the heresy that was in the area of Colossae or invading the church of the Colossians, the Colossian heresy. And it had two elements to it, basically. One was Greek philosophical thought, and the other was legalistic Judaism. Greek philosophical thought and legalistic Judaism, these two sort of combining together to bring a, a false wind of doctrine into the church. Now concerning the legalistic Judaism aspect of it, we'll get to that later on in the chapter in a few weeks, but we're going to concern ourselves primarily this morning with the Greek philosophical thought. Important that we know about the Greek culture, and we've talked about this before, that they loved knowledge and wisdom. In their culture, they exalted it above almost everything else, the pursuit of knowledge and wisdom, and they pursued it above and beyond anything else. They, they prided themselves on having a, a degree of sophistication in their philosophical systems. There developed out of the Greek philosophical system something known as Gnosticism. It didn't really blossom to its full measure until the second century, about a hundred years after this epistle was written. But what Paul is addressing here in this letter is the beginnings of Gnosticism. We're witnessing here, if we travel back into the time of the writing, the birth of Gnosticism, the, the, the incubation stage of the ideas, these ideas first becoming or first coming forward. And so Paul is addressing the root of the problem here. We get our word Gnosticism from the Greek word gnosis, which you know means knowledge. Greek word for gnosis, or the Greek word for knowledge is gnosis. Here's what Gnostics claimed. They claimed to have superior knowledge. Superior knowledge far above and beyond anyone else. They claimed to have secret knowledge, mysterious knowledge, esoteric knowledge that was necessary, mind you, they believed. Secret, mysterious, esoteric knowledge that they suggested was necessary for salvation and for continuing on in the Christian life. You see, for them in their philosophical minds, in their pursuit of wisdom and knowledge, the basic message of the cross was just too simplistic. Just that basic message that God loved us so much that he didn't want any of us to perish because of the wages of sin. And so he gave his only son to die upon the cross. God draped himself in humanity, was born a virgin, lived a sinless and perfect life, and then died upon the cross, an atoning death for you and I, and then rose three days later to conquer sin and death and to give us brand new life. You see, that was too simple for them. It wasn't mysterious enough. It wasn't radical enough. I don't, I don't know how they could think that, but that's what they thought. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, where he says, To the Greeks, Christ crucified is foolishness. They just think it dumb that God would become a man, live here among us, and then die for us. Why would God ever die for us and rise from the dead? That's silliness. The Greek philosophical mind didn't buy into it. And so for them, though they accepted to a certain degree the reality of Jesus Christ, it was becoming undeniable. Undeniable in Asia Minor during the the first century. They accepted it to a degree. They didn't see Jesus Christ alone as being totally adequate for salvation. And so as Greek philosophical thought began to penetrate the church, that Jesus Christ alone isn't enough, there's some secret other knowledge you need. 
this other mystery you need to tap into, this esoteric thing that you need to ascribe to, as that began to penetrate the church, people in Colossae, in this church, innocent, wonderful, Christ-loving Christians begin to think, well, maybe Jesus isn't enough for salvation and for life. I mean, maybe there really is a special knowledge. You know, these Greeks seem so smart. And they, think like, they, they seem like they've thought about it so, so much. And you know, the Greeks had these great orators. And they would wax on eloquently and they'd use big words. And, and you know, their arguments were persuasive, no doubt. And, and their, their presentation was intimidating. And they just seemed to be so much smarter than the average bear that he just kind of went, well, I, I don't know how they could be wrong. And, you know, we were kind of taught that Jesus was all we needed for salvation in life, but maybe there really is this other stuff that we need to seek after. But what Paul is saying in the book of Colossians is no. He says there is nothing deeper than Jesus Christ. In fact, he says in verse 2 that, Jesus Christ is the fullness of the mystery of God. Everything that is mysterious and wonderful and awesome about God is manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. And if someone comes along and says, well, there's something deeper than simply Jesus, man, they're out to lunch. Paul is saying, no way. He says in verse 3 that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the rich, valuable things of both wisdom and knowledge, those things that the Greeks sought after, are hidden in Christ Jesus, in the person of Christ. And he says in verse 10, and we'll talk about it next week, that we are complete in Jesus Christ. There's nothing more that you need. Now that seems so basic, you know. As I say it, I doubt that there's anybody in this room that that disagrees. But then as we go to live out the Christian life, you know, what you do is what you believe, not what you say or not what you nod your head to on a Sunday morning. What you do is what you believe. And so we might say, yes, 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 Jesus is the beginning and the end and, and he's everything. But then as you experience this walk by faith, it seems that so often Christians supply themselves with these other little crutches. Or, or they seek after these other little things. These, these winds of doctrine. These doctrines of demons are called in 1 Timothy 4 verse 1. The, these deceitful spirits that, yes, yes, the Lord, but check this out. Yes, the Lord, but have you experienced this? Yes, the Lord, but do you know about this teaching? Yes, the Lord, but have you followed this guy? Yes, the Lord, but are you a part of this movement? And Paul says, no, 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 no. If you have Jesus Christ, you are absolutely complete in him. In fact, Peter said the same thing. God bless him, he has. Peter said the same thing in his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He says that his divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. God's divine power has granted to us all things, everything pertaining to life and godliness, the life in the here and now and the life to come, according to the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. God has given us everything we need for this life and the life to come according to the true knowledge of Christ Jesus. Now, that word in the Greek, true knowledge, is a compound word. It's epinosis. The, the idea is kind of knowledge upon knowledge. You know, it, it, it's not just basic knowledge. It's clear 
exact, participatory knowledge. It's not a passing knowledge of Jesus Christ. Many people in culture today, oh, I know who Jesus was. You know what I mean? And they they sort of ascribe to, yes, he's the son of God. Yes, he's the savior of the world. Paul says that we don't have everything pertaining to life and godliness through just a passing knowledge of Christ Jesus, but through a clear, exact, participatory epinosis. A, A clear knowledge, meaning the kind of knowledge where you roll up your sleeves and you really get into something. You know what I mean? Have you ever seen a potter? That's, that's, man, I was the worst in uh, ceramics class at Carpi. I was the worst. In fact, I stole other kids' projects and carved my name on the bottom. I couldn't center the clay on the wheel. I don't know what my problem was. I could never get that thing centered. It drove me nuts. Little girls came along and, boop, boop, boop. it's just like that, Brit. And here I was a senior. Couldn't get it centered. Drove me nuts. But have you ever seen anybody that was good at it? You know, they've got their sleeves way rolled up and, and they're making a real big pot, you know, or a big vase and they've got their arm deep down in it and it's rubbing their chin as it spins and, and they're, just, they're just fully engaging it and pulling it up and you, you know what I'm talking about? And they come up and they've just got clay all the way up to their shoulders. You know, they've got an epinosis of that clay. They've got a clear, exact, experiential, roll up your sleeves and dig in knowledge of that lump in clay. Now, that's how the Christian is to be with Christ Jesus. We're to dig into Jesus. He's the bread of life. We're to feast upon him. He is the beginning and the end. He is the everything. You're to be feasting upon daily the person of Jesus Christ, really diving in to who he is. And, and when you do that, then you discover that you have everything you need for every problem in this life, for every challenge, for every fear, for every false thing, for every good thing, for every bad thing, for every scary thing, for every tra- for everything. You discover when you dive into Jesus Christ that it's all in Him. Now, if you never dive into Jesus Christ and you don't experience that epinosis, then that's when you begin to wander. Because you haven't dove in, you haven't immersed yourself in Christ, you haven't experienced the promise that everything you need is in Him, so you think that you're lacking. You're really not. It's right there. It's the Lord. It's yours for the taking. But that's when Christians begin to kind of wander and, well, maybe if I ascribe to this teaching or follow this guy or pursue this or have this experience, Christians so often get off on that one. If I were just to have this experience that these people had, It's in Christ Jesus and in abiding in Him. And so in verse 8, Paul is going to warn the church against the seduction of false philosophy, this Greek philosophical thought, and the claims of man. And and he's going to remind them, as he's reminding us this morning, of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Now let's read verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception." according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because just up in verse 4, he said something very similar. In verse 4, he said, I say this, what did he say? He said in verse 3, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this, in order that no one may delude you with persuasive argument. And now just four verses later, he's repeating himself. 
Can you tell that this is very important to the heart of God? He's repeating himself. He says in verse 4, I'm telling you in order that no one may delude you. And then just a few breaths later, see to it that no one takes you captive. This is very important. When he says, see to it that no one takes you captive, takes you captive, that compound verb means to lead or carry away. It was used of treasures. When somebody would conquer a people group and they would take away their treasures, you know, their goods. It was used to describe that. See that no one takes you captive or carries you away. Gromacki, one of my, Robert Gromacki, one of my favorite um, commentators says, Here, the force or thought is not so much to rob the Christian of something as it is to kidnap him. The heretical teacher, therefore, is like a slave trader. He wants to steal the believer away from his spiritual family and sell him as a slave into false doctrine. So when the heretical teacher comes into the church, as they were doing at the church in Colossae some 2,000 years ago, and as they will seek to do in this church, as the heretical teacher comes into the church, I want you to notice my phraseology there, they come into the church. They're not out seeking to win the lost. Their concern is not for the lost. They're not out winning souls. You see, we have what they don't have. People. They want people to come after them. False teachers have an agenda. They're looking for glory. They're looking for attention. And people are here because we worship Jesus Christ. They're not out to win the lost. They come into the church to divide the body. See to it that no one takes you captive. They're not robbing something from you. They're robbing you. Their goal is to begin to insidiously, very sneakily, introduce some false teaching. And as I've said in the previous weeks, here we are again, as I said in the previous weeks, it's always going to seem very intelligent. It's going to be backed up with persuasive arguments and with personality and charisma and an air of authority. And they introduce these things that seem good but certainly aren't biblical. And they tear apart the body of Christ. Turn to Acts 20 as we see Paul warn about this. Keep your finger here. We'll be right back. But go to Acts 20. Now in Acts 20... Paul is addressing the elders in Ephesus. It's kind of his farewell gig to the elders in Ephesus, a church that he pastored for a while. And we'll start in verse 26 for a little bit of context. He's talking to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. He says in verse 26 of Acts 20, Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God or the whole counsel of God. That's why here we we strive to teach the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Because you know what? If we didn't do that, we would skip some parts. It's just human nature. Some parts are too hard. It's hard to understand or it's too controversial or it's too in your face. 
And so we just say, well, by way of discipline, we're just going to teach it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. When we come up to the difficult or controversial, you know, subjects, we're going to have to deal with them because there they are. And so that, that was Paul's methodology. It's based on Nehemiah 8.8, 8, expositional teaching. That was his methodology. And he said, I'm innocent of everyone's blood here in Ephesus because I've taught you the whole word of God. I didn't shrink back from anything. I didn't skip anything. I didn't wimp out. I just told you everything about the word of God. And then he says in verse 28, now he warns them, but be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. Okay, that's the job of the elders, the pastors, to watch out for the flock and themselves. Be on guard for yourselves and the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Now he charges them, he warns them, I want you to look out for them. You've been appointed as overseers. I want you to shepherd them like a shepherd watches sheep. And I want you to realize how valuable they are. God purchased them with his own blood. He's really charging them here powerfully. And then he says in verse 29, I know, he's not guessing. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things in order to draw away the disciples after themselves. He says, savage wolves. He says, I know that they're going to come into the church and they're going to raise up from within the church. And their agenda is to draw disciples unto themselves. He says in verse 31, Therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. Paul says, be on the alert. These people are going to come in. And this is what he's saying in Colossians. Again, as as you flip back there to where your finger is. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. Now, philosophy in and of itself is not bad. You know, some of you guys have taken philosophy classes at school or whatever, or you consider yourself to be somewhat philosophical or whatever it might be. And it's important to point out that philosophy in and of itself is not bad. Philosophy basically means to love wisdom. You know, that was the Greeks. They loved wisdom. It just means to love wisdom. And really, philosophy is very broad. Everything having to do with God and the world and the meaning of human life, both in the pagan and Jewish schools of thought, was called philosophy in those days. It's not bad in and of itself, but listen, philosophy, the love of wisdom, the study of wisdom, the formulation of wisdom systems, you understand that there's different kinds of wisdom And so there are different kinds of philosophy. Once again, keep your finger in Colossians and turn back just a a few pages toward the back to James. The book of James. As it tells us that there are different kinds of wisdom and and so there will be different kinds of philosophy. James chapter 3. Starting in verse, let's start in verse 13. James 3.13. It says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior in his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. 
Now, there's a litmus test for wisdom. Uh, the Bible says that wisdom will be manifest in good behavior and in good deeds. That's good to know, isn't it? Verse 14, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition or strife in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, or unspiritual, and demonic. Paul says that that people who are bitter and jealous and divisive, their selfish ambition, their strife, oh, you know, don't, don't listen to the pastor, he this and that, or you can't believe that, you know, really, let me tell you about this, or that group, or this and that. He says that that's not wisdom from above. It's earthly, it's unspiritual, and demonic. I want you to see how those are put together there. I want you to see how those are put together. Natural and demonic. Natural and demonic. Now, look what it says in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Verse 17 now for contrast. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, or that is willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So we have the description of wisdom that is from above. Pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy, good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. It's pretty easy then to spot godly wisdom, right? There's a litmus test. It should be pretty easy to spot godly wisdom. But wisdom which is natural and demonic, earthly, that's also explained to us. It manifests itself in bitter jealousy, in selfish ambition, and in strife. So I want you guys as Christians now to be aware inside the body that when you see an agenda of selfish ambition, when you see jealousy manifest, when you see strife and striving, you you need to stop and say, okay, wait a minute, where is this so-called wisdom coming from? It might be cloaked in in wonderful words. It, it, It might be wrapped in some charisma. It might have the air of authority. But it's going to reveal itself in its divisive, striving, selfish, jealous nature. And that's, you guys need to know that. Because it's been in the church for the last 2,000 years. Now, going back to Colossians, and back to that immediate context. Thinking once again about Greek philosophical thought during the first century. In the first century, uh, the Greek philosophical thought that was the roots of, the beginning of Gnosticism, basically concluded that Jesus could not be God. Therefore, he wasn't sufficient for all things. All things pertaining to life and godliness were not in him. Their conclusion grew out of this philosophical question. Here's what they were pondering. Why is there evil in this world if creation was made by a holy God? Now, we've all asked that question at one time, haven't we? Everybody asks that question. Oftentimes, when you're evangelizing, people say, oh, yeah, well, if God is so good, why is there evil? You know what I mean? And why doesn't he just deal with it? I love to tell people, well, if God just dealt with everything that was evil and just wiped it off the face of the earth, you'd be gone, bro. 
I love to do that in evangelism. I don't know how effective it is, but it's fun. <laughs> so they were pondering the question, why is there evil in this world if creation was made by a holy God? And we know, of course, that evil is a result of the free will of man. We know that. But when they thought about it, they came to two false conclusions. Their first false conclusion was this. All matter, everything physical, is inherently evil. They imagined a, a, a extreme dichotomy between spiritual things and physical things. The spiritual world and the physical world. And they said, okay, everything physical, all matter is inherently evil. And then their second false conclusion was this. A holy God could never come in contact with evil matter. So they figured everything that you see is evil. Everything. That's not biblical. You know, material things are, are, are neutral. They're spiritually neutral. You know, people often misquote uh, what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6 when he said, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. People often say, money is the root of all evil. You know, there it is. That, that's false philosophical thought. That's false wisdom. Money in and of itself is morally neutral. And the Bible doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Just a little bit of error there makes a big difference, really, in what you believe and what you're communicating. They had a little bit of error here. They said, there's all this evil in the world, but there's supposed to be this holy God. Okay, everything you see is inherently bad, wicked, and a holy God could never possibly come in contact. The Bible doesn't teach that. Material things are morally neutral, and it's not that a holy God cannot come in contact with them. It's that a holy God chooses not to allow evil into his kingdom for salvation in eternity. There's a vast difference between those two things. And so here's what they concluded. A holy God could not have made evil stuff, they say, since everything is evil. So they dreamed up this. There must be a series of emanations that have come forth from God. An emanation is simply uh, something that comes forth from a source, something emitted. They said there must be a series of emanations, spiritual beings, that have come forth from God. Now they concluded that there were good emanations and bad emanations. Good emanations they thought were like angels and those sorts of spiritual beings. And bad emanations were demons and the like. But did every emanation, because it came forth from God, because it was emitted from God, had a little bit of divinity in it, a little bit of God's holiness in it. And the further the emanation from God, the less divinity in it. Now, here's how they said the world got into existence. They said that there finally came an emanation that had enough divinity in it to still create, but was far enough from the holiness of the one true God that he would create evil. And they say it is this emanation that created the world in which we live. He had enough divinity to create, but was far enough from the holy God that he would create evil. And Jesus, they say, is just one of those emanations. 
Don't get all caught up in this Jesus is the only way thing and He's the only one and He's the only way, the truth and the life and that He's all you need. He's just one of many emanations. There are lots of angels that are on par with Jesus and demons that are on par with the power of Jesus and He's just one of many that you guys happen to be into. But if you'll follow after us, we will show you the true way to wisdom. We will help you to climb this ladder of emanations until you finally get to the one true God. Jesus is just one step, just a rung on the ladder. You're on the right path, but let me show you the whole rest of the way. That ought to sound very familiar to you. Because that's Islam. That's Mormonism. That's the New Age. That's Buddhism. That's the Jehovah's Witnesses. Every one of them teaches that Jesus was very important. Jesus was very important, but every one of them denies the absolute deity and sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It is the Gnostic heresy of 2,000 years ago. It is the same lie of Satan being manifest in our community today. It is the exact same thing. Talk to any Muslim. He will tell you, oh yes, Jesus, he is very important. But allow me to tell you about Muhammad, who was his greatest servant. And if you'll just get beyond Jesus and into Muhammad, then you will be able to come to Allah, the one true God. Mormons. Jesus is very, very important. Oh yes, he's, he's the Savior of the world, absolutely. But, you know, he's just the spiritual brother of Lucifer. He's just one of many. And you too can become a god. If you'll just ascribe to the Book of Mormon, which is some more wisdom, deeper wisdom, helps you understand the Bible, helps you to go a little further, you will ascribe to godhood. It's the same lie. Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is very important. He was a God. One God among many gods. Not the true God, Jehovah, but very important. The New Age. Yes, Jesus, yes. You should ascribe to the Christ consciousness on your way to Godhood. It's just a rung on the ladder. Hinduism and Krishna. People, please don't think this Bible study is irrelevant. These things are affecting your friends and family and community today. Now, we know that 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. They would say, well, that's crude baby faith. You need to subscribe to the truly deep things of God. And what Paul says in verse 8 here about their philosophy is that it was empty and deceptive. Empty, hollow as it's translated, and deceptive. Meaning it was void of genuine spiritual truth, void of genuine power, and it was void of hope. 
There was no light at the end of the tunnel. Don't you love the way Jesus tells it to you? I am the way. You want to know the way? I'm the way. I am the truth. Do you want to know the truth? I'm the truth. Do you want to know about life? I am the life. And if you follow after me, you will have eternal life. He makes it so simple. He gives us a clear picture. He gives us the clear way. He just tells us exactly how it is and he gives us the light at the end of the tunnel and gives us the hope of heaven. But these false ideologies, well, it's murky. It's esoteric. I can't tell you about it because you wouldn't understand. But if you follow me, you might get there. Empty deception, hollow, void of truth and power and hope. And the reason that Paul says it was such in verse 8 is because it was according to the tradition of men. According to the tradition of men, as opposed to Christ himself or the word of God. Now, tradition, again, in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Tradition just means that which is handed down. And there is true Christian tradition. A quick example, I'll just turn back a couple pages. You can if you like, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15 where Paul writes, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Again, in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. So there are true Christian traditions. These are codified now for us in the Bible. As the canon of the Bible has been closed, those things have been clearly written down for us. And so when Paul says the tradition handed down to you, he's talking about the things that you now have in your hand. The things that are in the Word of God. That is Christian tradition in the truest sense. It's important as we consider traditions that we recognize their origin that we recognize their origin. And he says that this false philosophical thought of the Greeks here that was infiltrating the church, that its origin was in man, not in Christ. It was according to the traditions of man, not according to the word of God and not according to Christ. Now, having said that, we know and we understand that there are many traditions in the church today. Traditions that are not necessarily biblical. That is to say, they're not necessarily outlined for us in the Bible. But they're not necessarily unbiblical. There's not a prohibition, there's not a prohibitive statement in the Bible that says, don't do this. They're traditions, you know what I mean? I mean, we, we've got them here at reality, let's be honest. You know, and, and there's traditions that I inherited from the church that I went to prior to this one. And there's new traditions that we started at this church and the churches that we're now planning, well, they've received those traditions. You know what they are. We come forward and the carpets and this and the way we do worship after them. Just little things, no big deal. They're not inherently evil, not inherently bad. They're, they're not biblical per se. The Bible doesn't say you must do these things, but they're not anti-biblical. The Bible doesn't say don't do these things. 
They're just the way that our worship in this culture that God has given us at this church manifests itself. But let me warn all of us as we grow as a church, still being very young as a church, that those traditions become problematic when they come in a conflict with the Word of God and they're held on to vehemently. They're held on to tenaciously. You know what I mean. If we begin to do something and the Word of God begins to show us, well, that just gets in the way. That doesn't add to worshiping the Lord. That doesn't add to the glory of God. That doesn't bring us nearer to the Lord. It just gets in the way. Well, then we should do away with it. But when people err, is when they go, no, my tradition. Like a fiddle around the roof, you know what I mean. Tradition. And they want to hold on to those things. That's a problem. And, and it sounds silly, but there may come a day in this church Whereas our culture develops, there's something that no longer lends itself to the worship experience, but gets in the way thereof. At that time, we need to have a real discussion with each other about, hey, why are we holding on to this tradition? Let's see what the Word of God has to say. Jesus just lambasted, lambasted the religious leaders for exalting their own traditions above the Word of God. Let's look at it in Matthew 15. Again, keep a finger in Colossians. We'll be right back. But Matthew 15. Matthew 15, starting in verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Pharisees and scribes, leaders at that time in the religious life of Israel. They came to Jesus from Jerusalem saying in verse 2, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? The tradition that we hold from our forefathers, how come your disciples don't follow these things? And they explain what they mean. They say, because they don't wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, that was a tradition handed down by the rabbis. It was not mosaic. It was rabbinical. And the rabbis said, you got to do this. You know, and traditions often develop from interpretation. That's what the Jews did. That's what the Mishnah is all about. You know, they, they take the Torah, they take the Old Testament, and they comment, and they comment, and they comment, and they comment. And Rabbi Akiva said this. And Rabbi Halal said this. And Rabbi Shammai said this. And Rabbi Ben so-and-so said this. And tradition upon tradition upon tradition. And the Lord says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And they say, well, you can only walk this far. If there's a, a, a ditch and it's got water in it, you could jump over it on the Sabbath, but you cannot wade through it on the Sabbath. And that became the tradition of the elders. The tradition in Israel. And part of it was, you must wash your hands before you eat bread. Now, that's a good thing to do. But they did it religiously, as if there was some power in it. They had a real problem with Jesus and his disciples because they weren't following the tradition. Why don't you do things like we do? We've always done it this way. Verse 3. Jesus answered them and said, And why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? 
For God said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. It's in the word of God. Verse 5. But you say, whoever shall say to his father or mother, anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. Now, let me explain that. Uh, There was this concept in first century Judaism called korban. Korban. And basically, what the Jews were doing at that time was they, they could declare things holy, any one of their possessions. This is holy unto the Lord. It's going to be used for the service of the Lord. It belongs to the house of the Lord and the ministry of God. It's not for anybody else. It's korban. It's holy. I've given it to the Lord. And they would use that as an excuse for greediness. Somebody had a need. Oh, I'm sorry. It's the Lord's. And we're told here from Jesus that they were doing it with their mothers and fathers. Now, the command of the Bible is honor your mother and father. Don't mess with them or I'll kill you, said God. Loose paraphrase there. The B-I-V. And, and in the Jewish culture, you were to take care of your parents and your family. And that's a wonderful thing. And their family got old and their parents couldn't work anymore and they would look to the children. I need you for support and for resources. And the children would say, sorry mom, sorry dad, my possessions are korban. They're holy to the Lord. You can't have them. Now, it was perfectly good as far as tradition went. And it was totally an abomination as far as the word of God went. And so Jesus commented in verse 6 and says, He is not to honor his father or his mother, and thus you invalidate the word of God for the sake of your traditions. Verse 7, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And that's exactly what Jesus, that's exactly what Paul is addressing in Colossians with the Greek philosophical thought. And Jesus addressed it here with religious leaders that these traditions develop. These ideas of how we ought to do things even as God's people. And they really get in the way of true worship of God so many times. And they allow us to become religious. Well, if I keep this tradition, and it could happen here, people. It could happen here. Well, if I go forward after the service and I get down on my face on the carpets and, or I get down on my knees or I do thus and so and this and that or the other, you know, then I must be okay. And God said you could do all the traditions and your heart is totally far from the Lord. You know, it's part of the culture here. It's very biblical, though, that we raise our hands to the Lord. And you might come in and think, well, I'm, my hands are up. I must be worshiping the Lord. But your heart is just a million miles from Him. Watch out for those things. Don't let the traditions of men contradict or get in the way of, and don't teach them as, as the Word of God. They're the ideas of men. I'm telling you, within the church culture of our world today, this is prevalent. This is very prevalent. Going back to Colossians now. The last thing that is said here about this Greek philosophical thought is given to us in verse 8. After it says, according to the tradition of men, 
It says that their Greek philosophical thought was also according to the elementary principles of the world. The elementary principles of the world. The Greek word translated elementary principles, it's translated rudiments in the King James Version. It refers to anything in a series or a row. It would refer to like the ABCs. It would refer to notes in a musical scale. That's the way that it was usually used, is to refer to a basic ordered system. But we've also discovered recently, most modern commentators agree, that in ancient Greece it was used to refer to what was known as the elemental spirits of the universe. These emanations, angels or demons, that influenced heavenly bodies, stars and planets constellations. It was one of the words in the vocabulary of religious astrology of that day. The Revised Standard Version notes that correctly and translates it elemental spirits. The New Living Translation translates it evil spirits of this world. And the demonic spirits were thought to control planetary spheres and so the lives of men and women. What does this make you think of? What does this make you think of? Astrology today. Astrology today. The Gnostics believe that these spiritual emanations, angels and demons, controlled the heavenly stars and planets, the constellations, and so influenced people's lives. And Paul says here that this philosophy is according to those elemental spirits that are by nature demonic. And so he says, listen here, church in Colossae. Don't even mess around with these things. Do not entertain this false philosophy for a minute. Because it's empty, it's hollow, it's deceptive, it's according to the tradition of men, it's contrary to the word of God, and its root or its source is evil spirits. And I don't know if you know, Christian, but the word of God forbids that we would have anything to do with astrology, with horoscopes, with the zodiac, with astral charts, with tarot cards, with Ouija boards, with anything of the sort. It says in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19, And beware, lest you lift up your eyes to heaven, and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Now, you might say, well, I, I don't worship and serve. I mean, I, I read, you know, I, I read my little chart there in the, in the newspaper in the morning. I'll, I'll just be honest with you. In my teenage years, I used to read that in the mornings. You know, I was backslidden. I was far from the Lord, and I just read. I didn't ascribe too much weight to it. But in reality, what did that do? Well, in the morning, I put my faith in the stars instead of in Jesus Christ. And whether you want to call it that or not, it's worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars. And God says, don't do it. And when his people did it, God always, throughout history, judged them severely. Read the book of Jeremiah. He judged them severely. Christian, when I read this in the word of God, I repented. God, I'm sorry that I even read that silly thing. I'm sorry that I even know what the zodiac is or what my, my stomach turns when I hear Christians ask other Christians, what's your sign? Oh, you're a Pisces? It means thus and so. I hear Christians say this. My stomach turns. Its roots are in Satan. 
It is demonic because it draws away from God the trust of man and places it in anything other than God. And that's demonic. That is Satan's scheme. To get your attention, your focus, your hope, your trust off of Jesus Christ and onto anything else. If you have anything to do with astral charts, with astrology, with horoscopes, with Ouija boards, with mediums, with spiritists, you must repent today. Those things are evil and they are an open door for your life for Satan. You must repent of those things today. Don't even play games with it. Oh, I'm entertained by it. Well, then you're entertained by Satan. Don't let that entertain you. You need to read something in the morning. Read the Bible, man. There you can find true direction for your life. You know that God killed King Saul because he consulted a medium? 1 Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13. God killed him because he went to a medium. And so I hope what you've seen this morning is the destructive nature of the Colossian heresy, the influence of early Gnosticism. And I hope you see now why Paul is warning them over and over to cling to the Word of God, to avoid these things, to handle accurately the Word of truth. And one last thing. Because the Gnostics believe that matter was evil, they refuse to attribute humanity to Jesus Christ. Remember, that creates a problem for them, doesn't it? All matter is evil, therefore God could not have draped himself in humanity because a body is evil. And so the Gnostics denied the humanity of Jesus Christ. They say, no, no, no. He wasn't actually born a virgin. And he didn't actually drape himself in humanity. He didn't have a a real human body. And that bursts something called uh, docetism. Docetism, however you pronounce it. Who knows? Which taught that the body of Christ was something that only appeared materially, but in reality was spiritual. Such a belief led to an immoral life. Because here's what they said. Since the spirit is separate from the physical body, then we don't have any real responsibility before God or anybody else with what we do with our body. I mean, it's separate from my spiritual life. Who cares what I do with my body? That is where this false philosophy led. And so they engage in all sorts of sexual immorality, saying, well, it's not my spirit, it's fine. Paul says in the book of Corinthians, do you dare to join Christ to a harlot? You are the temple of the living God. What you do in your body reflects who you are in the Spirit. And when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, He died a bodily death to redeem you, body and spirit. And if it's not true that Jesus uh, came with a real body, then it's not true that we've been forgiven of our sins. If he didn't come with an actual body, then there is no atonement because Leviticus 17.11 tells us that blood is required for the atonement. Hebrews 9.22 says there's no forgiveness for sins without the shedding of blood. And if he didn't have a real body, then how could he shed real blood? Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. What could pay for the price of, of that? What could pay for the debt of death but only a life and a real life? So if Jesus didn't have a real physical body, if he was not totally God and totally man, then you are totally still in your sin. You understand the importance of doctrine? The Apostle John addressed it in 1 John chapter 4 where he said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit but test the spirits 
to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Because if he came in the flesh, then there's atonement. And if there's atonement, then there's eternal life for you. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is coming and now is already in the world. Very important things that Paul's addressing. So he says in verse 9, as we end, In him, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is such a rich theological statement denied by many in the world today that he is absolutely 100% God and yet in bodily form. Totally God, totally man. You say, well, that's hard to understand. Well, you're not God. Totally God and totally man. It was the only way, according to the system set up by God, for you and I to be redeemed, to be forgiven. And if the fullness of deity is found in Jesus Christ, then it's not found anywhere else. So stop looking. God has given you everything pertaining to life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And Ephesians 3.19 tells us that we should be filled up with the fullness of God. How do you do that? Well, the fullness of God is in Christ Jesus. Dive into him. Epinosis. Get your hands dirty with Jesus. Get into him. Let your life be consumed by who he is and walk in that reality. Amen? Lord, thank you for your word by which we have our senses trained to discern good from evil. Ask that you would make us wise in these last days, Lord. Ask that you would make us those who understand the teachings of your Bible that we could easily spot error. And Lord, we just pray that the truth of your Bible would flow forth from our life, that we would be filled with the fullness of God, that that truth would flow forth from us, that we'd be so ready to verbalize the gospel, to defend the faith, to give a reason for the joy that is within us. Make us defenders of the faith in these last days, Lord. Holy Spirit, you have convinced us of these things by your word. Make us zealous for the word of God and not the traditions of men. Thank you that your word is a lion. We don't need to defend it, just let it out of the cage, but teach us to do that. Oh Lord, give us a greater hunger for your word. Instruct us daily. We want to feast upon you, Jesus. We want to feast upon you.